0: Dear listeners, welcome to the second episode of the podcast about enzymes and molecules. I am Roberto Foresti, professor of biochemistry at the University of Paris Est Créteil, and working as a scientist at the Mondor Institute of Biomedical Research in France. Following the previous episode, where we discussed some aspects of hemoxygenase and its product carbon monoxide. Today, we will, buy, we will be dissecting the role of another important product of which oxidative enzymatic activity, the bile pigments biliverdin and bilirubin. Although biliverdin and bilirubin were initially perceived merely as waste products produced by hemoxygenase, we have grown to appreciate that they possess remarkable antioxidant properties, being able to fight the action of peroxy radicals which are destructive molecules produced in our cells. The relevance of bilirubin as a protective substance has also been confirmed by epidemiological studies in different human populations, showing that the circulation of these metabolites in moderate levels in our body is associated with protection against cardiovascular disease, diabetes and metabolic dysfunction. One particular scientist significantly contributed to shift the paradigm of Vinny Verdin and bilirubin from potentially toxic substances to crucial protective molecules. And we are really fortunate to have him with us today. So I'm delighted to welcome Professor Roland Stoker, PhD, who retired only a few months ago after an outstanding scientific career. Dr. Stoker is truly an international scientist, having trained in Switzerland as a biochemist, in Australia for his PhD and in the United States for his postdoctoral studies. After a short stint at the University of Bern, Switzerland, he moved permanently to Australia, where for several decades he led research teams at the Heart Research Institute in Sydney, the University of New South Wales, the University of Sydney, the Victor Chang Cardiac Research Institute and again at the Heart Research Institute. He was elected as a fellow of the Swiss Academy of Medical Sciences and the Australian Academy of Health and Medical Sciences. He is recognized internationally for his expertise in redox biology, vascular disease and atherosclerosis, a condition whereby a sticky plaque will form inside our arteries leading to reduced blood flow in vessels, and eventually to heart attacks if left untreated. Today, Dr. Stocker and I will talk about why bilirubin can be toxic, how in normal conditions bilirubin is a powerful protective metabolite, and what was the inspiration to explore the idea that bilirubin possesses antioxidant properties. We will also describe recent interesting efforts to produce bilirubin-based drugs for therapy. We hope you will enjoy our second episode of the podcast and that our conversation with Dr. Stoker will clarify the important role of Billy Rubin in our health. Hello, Roland.
1: Hello, Rob- Roberta. So happy to be able to join you in this. Thank you so much. Thank you yeah.
0: Yes, how are you?
1: I'm very well, thank you. I enjoy retirement.
0: Oh, that's excellent. That's nice to hear. Yes. So let's start with biliverdin and bilirubin. Could you describe what they are and where they come from?
1: Sure, Arubenta. So both bilirubin and bilirubin are coloured substances or pigments as we refer them to. Bilirubin has a green colour, bilirubin is golden yellow and both pigments are generated in our body um, during the enzymatic degradation of a red pigment called heme through the action of hemoxygenase which you have already covered in your first uh, podcast and this is really responsible The heme is responsible for, for the red color of, of blood and red blood cells.
0: Whenever I teach my students about oxidative stress and I introduce them with heme oxygenase, I always tell them that this is the only enzymatic pathway that we can visualize and we can see that actually hemoxygenase is working when we look at the bruise, because there we can really appreciate the different colors that you were describing just now. Maybe you can elaborate on that.
1: Well, I can only say they are very colorful in it, some
0: <laughs> So,
1: but I mean, if I may say it, you know, some additional, uh, words, I mean, you know, the the spectrum of the colors that can develop actually also indicate or reflect the complexity of human degradation and then oxidation of the pigments themselves. And you know, maybe later during this podcast, we'll actually come back to some of these issues. So particularly oxidation of bilirubin is a highly complex process and it can give rise to many, many substances and eventually... Very small molecules that have no longer have color, and that's then when the bruise and you know, eventually disappears.
0: I see. Yes. Yeah, so this evolution of the bruise reflects not only the production of bilirubin, bilirubin, carbon monoxide, and so on, but also the different degradation products that occur after these these molecules have
1: been something. Yeah.
0: Yes. Yeah. I never thought about that. That's very interesting. And so without going forward with this, just in a la- another point about this. So this means that in a bruise, in a kind of wound, because in essence, this is what it is. It's a wound that is under the skin. If we think about capillaries breaking and so on, there are obviously continuously the production of these Oxidant species, even throughout the production of hemoxygenase and the production of uh, the bilirubin and bilirubin and so on, the wound will continue to produce oxidants that will then interact with bilirubin and bilirubin.
1: Correct. And of course, one of the oxidants is he itself.
0: Yes. Yes. So there is this, uh, this continuous, it's a dynamic because we like to present everything in schemes, but in reality, the, the, it's a dynamic of different processes occurring at the same time. Production of bilirubin from him, from Billy, from Billy Burden, and interaction, continuous reactions with the oxidants that are produced in locally by the, by the, by the stress, basically.
1: Yeah, correct. And in a, in a situation where you have a bruise, you probably have also a situation where the breakdown of heme is not happening in an extremely controlled manner, like during uh, the phagocytosis of red blood cells, where we know that the iron liberated during the action of heme oxygenase is then stored away in a redox inert manner. So, to prevent inadvertent oxidative uh, reactions, but in a bruise, in the extracellular milieu, there is plenty of room for heme derived iron to participate and engage in, in oxidative stress related reactions that contribute to the oxidation degradation of the bowel pigments, Billy and Billy Ruben. Yes, very
0: interesting. As we mentioned earlier, uh, biliverdin and bilirubin were initially perceived only as waste and potentially toxic products. Could you explain why this is true in certain conditions and what inspired you to hypothesize that the pigments possess antioxidant properties?
1: Yeah, look, this is a number of questions. So let me just go through them one by one. Um, so let's first talk about waste. Uh, products. And I would like to distinguish that from you know, potentially toxic products that you've mentioned. So both bilirudin and bilirubin have been commonly considered waste products as it was thought that they have no biological functions. This is actually despite the fact that in animals we have known for some time that bilirubin, at least is an important com- component. For example, it's important in in eggshells of certain birds and frogs, it's uh, it's present in wings of moths and butterflies, and even the placenta of dogs. And the ability to synthesize pigments such as uh, biliverdin and deposit them in eggshells is actually a process gained during evolution of birds. So this has been well documented. And in the eggshell, uh, the pigmentation is represents an important uh, process with respect to sexual signaling and the physiological and mechanical properties of the pigments. And in animal models of research, Billy Burden has been reported to attenuate you know, processes such as graft rejection, um, for example, you know, organs of the heart. Um, although it is less clear whether this is due to Billy Burden or the result of the conversion of bilirub- uh, bilirubin to bilirubin. That's actually quite a complex issue. So potential limitation to a biological function of bilirubin in humans is the common assumption that except for liver and bile, this pigment does not accumulate to significant concentrations because bilirubin is water soluble. It can be excreted readily, and it's also, as, as you know, um, reduced readily by reductases to, to bilirubin. So the, you know, bilirubin still actually has function. So to consider bilirubin as a waste product is actually a little bit con- more controversial um, than is the case for, for bilirubin. So why did we think that bilirubin is a waste product? Well, first of all... As we have already said, bilirubin is formed from bilirubin, but the interesting thing is that the the enzymatic reaction actually reflects an anabolic process. So anabolic pathways typically require an input of energy, and they are not found in metabolic degradation pathways or metabolism, other than the de- degradation of he so heme degradation is in that sense is very unique as it has this anabolic step involved. And moreover, as you also know, unlike uterubrine, bilirubin is not soluble in water, and I'm sure we'll come back to that later during this podcast. So because of that, bilirubin then uh, needs to be metabolized further for our body to be able to eliminate it. And that's uh, quite a complicated process, simply to make bilirubin water soluble. And, of course, that's also then the problem when we come to the issue of potential therapeutics. So, the metabolism of human formation of beta Rubin really stands out or stood out when we started looking at that. And we started wondering um, whether there is not a situation where um, uh, this so-called waste product would not have a beneficial uh, function. So, in situations where healing degradation to bilirubin is increased and, and the processes required for bilirubin elimination are decreased. So you have a change at both ends. Under those conditions, very high concentration of the pigment can accumulate in blood and this can result in jaundice. And it's commonly observed in, in premature infants, uh, because in these premature infants, the glucuronidation pathway required for elimination of beta is undeveloped and they convert, they have a need to convert fetal hemoglobin to adult hemoglobin. So there's a very high turnover or very high, high rate of degradation. Mm-hmm. And this then can result in exaggerated jaundice and to a situation where the blood's capacity to bind bitirubin is exhausted and bitirubin begins to accumulate in the skin, in the eyes, you know, which is quite typical for childless, but also the brain. And in the brain, it can cause toxicity, but mechanisms that are actually largely still un- unknown. And it can then be responsible for the clinical symptoms of kernicterus. Kernicterus. Except under such uh, pathological conditions, bilirubin is actually not toxic. So now it comes to toxicity. So, toxicity data to for bilirubin are, to the best of my knowledge, not available. And there is actually no reason to suspect that either pigment um, of dermal or uh, of uh, toxicity for, for the skin um, or, the, or the eye. And you know, working with these chemicals in the lab, you also would be aware they're actually very safe to handle, you know, um, except for the usual precautions for ma- manipulating fine, uh, finely divided solids. Um, so you know, I don't actually think we can make a general statement that, this, that we're dealing with toxic compounds, so on the very special, special situations where there is this high level of Uh, John is, where the plasma capacity to bind videorubin becomes exhausted. That is when toxicity can set in. But under most situations, rubin and videorubin are not toxic substances. So I'm talking a lot, but do you also want to to tell you a little bit about uh, our hypothesis? So why did we start investigating that? And that goes back to Uh, late 1985 to the beginning of 1986. And at that time I was working in the lab of uh, Professor Bruce Ames. And at that time, um, he was really interested in metabolic um, pathways and end products of metabolic pathways in in particular. And he studied the action of urate and taurine as and products of metabolic pathways. And he found that both these compounds had antioxidant activity. And at that time, we had a very gifted chemist in the lab, Uh, Yurohiro Yamamoto. And when Junkan, as he was called to us, um, looked at the chemical structure of bilirubin, he said, look, at the central carbon atom C10, that these two hydrogens, that You know, it must be very labile. And we knew already that bilirubin was sensitive to oxidation. So we formed the hypothesis that, like uric acid and and toriate, maybe bilirubin also has got antioxidant activity. So we then tested this. And essentially, you know, we just used very simple test tube uh, experiments. And we compared the antioxidant activity of bilirubin sports lipids with that of vitamin E or more precisely alpha-tocopherol because at that time alpha-tocopherol was thought to be the most important lipid-soluble antioxidant and we tested bitarubin against lipid oxidation because bitarubin is known to be lipid-soluble and not water-soluble. And I'm going to just highlight the fact um, that I think strength of that work was that we used very well defined systems. So we used the recrystallized uterubin. We used purified lipids in combination with a very controlled way to generate a specific type of radical. We have already mentioned them, peroxyl radicals. And we generated these radicals not only in a controlled but in a measurable uh, manner. And we combined this uh, methodology with a new method that was developed actually by Jun Kang uh, at the same time in the Bruce Ames lab to measure the primary product of lipid peroxidation, namely lipid hydrocaroxides, in a sensitive and quantifiable manner. And it was the combination of these experimental approaches that then allowed us to, doc- to demonstrate that bilirubin and to a lesser extent, beta-rubin, you know, have high radical scavenging activity. And that this activity was pronounced at low but physiologically relevant oxygen concentrations, such that at 2% oxygen, beta-rubin started to, you know, show better, stronger antioxidant activity than alpha tocopherol, which at that time, as I said, was thought to be the most important liquid-soluble antioxidant. So that's really um, how we went about it. And I I stress the importance of the methodology because I think when we come to some of the newer strategies used today to develop clinically relevant forms of bilirubin to administer to humans, I think one of the problems that that field, in my humble opinion, has is that that some of the technology that they use to describe the biological activity of the products that they are generating and proposing to be used instead of beta rubin actually, they're not well controlled experiments, and I think that's where the field, you know, has still got quite a significant uh, way to go.
0: I understand completely your point because, uh, of course, I am an admirer of your uh, papers and your uh, you know, experimental insights. And I think that the fact that you touch on the methodology is very important because I feel, I don't know if you feel the same, that nowadays what you are describing to me is, yes, very, very thorough uh, experimental approaches. And it's biochemistry, being able to look at the products, at quantifying precisely products, at, at having a very, an excellent control of the experimental conditions, which to me are very important, of course, in all kinds of experiments, but in biochemistry, especially, I think. And I feel whenever I see papers published, even though they may be fantastic papers and very interesting from a conceptual point of view. I sometimes feel that there are, there are data and findings that are not really proven from a really methodological point of view. Are we really saying that this substance is doing this? For example, have we actually measured this substance in this organ, in circulation and so on? And I feel we are missing this in the way science is evolving at the moment so the fact that your approach was very systematic you had really you define very well your membranes your the way you generated the peroxy radicals the oxygen concentration in your environment and so on really shows that the findings you you had were really strong were really robust and of course then Later on, all of, all, of your, uh, all of your findings and all of, all of your data were actually confirmed. So I think your approach was obviously fantastic and very, something that, that we have all to aspire to. So you, you told us how you were able to demonstrate in your experiments that uh, bilirubin and bilirubin were antioxidants. So you showed in the same experiments, basically, that bilirubin can incorporate into the cell membranes and protect against uh, the attack of free radicals. And uh, free radicals that are not just produced experimentally, but we are also exposed, we also produce when we are exposed to sunlight, for example, or to smoking. So. You also demonstrated that bilirubin binds to albumin and not just to cell membranes. And albumin, we know, is a protein that is found in circulating in blood. So bilirubin protects also albumin from the attack by free radicals. So the picture that is emerging here is that bilirubin can protect different cellular structures from the attack of free radicals and maybe from the damaging effect of other kinds of oxidants. How can we explain this phenomenon and what do you think are the overall implications for the protection of the organism?
1: Well, so with regards to the lipids and membranes, I mean, we knew from a long time ago that Diderupin is lipid soluble. And so that's why the most obvious first experiment was to look at An antioxidant activity of beta rubin in, in a lipid environment, and we happened to use, you know, one of the most common phospholipid species in in our experiments, phosphatidylcholine, uh, and you know, we could readily demonstrate that phosphatidylcholine is protected from radical oxidation uh, by beta rubin And you mentioned albumin. The reason why we turned to albumin and started considering that an antioxidant activity may extend from lipids to protein is simply because albumin is the transport protein for beta-rubin in our circulation. But much more interesting to me was the observation that dichroism studies revealed that when rubin binds to albumin, something happens to that central C10 atom that I've already mentioned to you. So, in such a way that you don't have the intramolecular hydrogen bonding like you have in bithiourbin in an um, in, or, uh, in an organic solvent, but those ones become disrupted, so that you have the two dihydropyrrol noises of the bithiourbin come become twisted, and as a result of that, those two hydrogen atoms at the C10 carbon bridge of bilirubin really stick out and become exposed. And that made us wonder whether that could then enable those hydrogen atoms to engage in the radical stem engine. And as a result of that, result in a more specific oxidation by peroxyl radicals than what we have seen in the lipid membranes, I should perhaps elaborate here and say that when we looked at oxidation products during oxidation of bilirubin in membranes and lipids, we did we could not identify readily any oxidation products. What we could observe by eye, going back to the Bruce uh, similarity, is the disappearance of color. When we then did the experiment with albumin, it was a complete albumin-bound bilirubin, the picture was completely different. Our eyes told us immediately that yellow turned into green before it became colourless. So and We then showed with analytical techniques um, that indeed when the bilirubin is bound to albumin, oxidation by peroxyl radicals is much more specific than for oxidation of bilirubin in the lipid environment. and bilirubin is formed almost stoichiometrically at the beginning of the reaction, before bilirubin and then the remaining bilirubin are oxidized to further secondary oxidation uh, products. And so again, we not only showed that the bilirubin could protect the protein from oxidation, we used quantitative amino acid analysis to demonstrate That's again, you know, using very quantitative uh, methodology to to, uh, prove that, uh, Keynes. But we actually also found that other ligands of albumin, including fatty acids, were protected by albumin bound bilirubins from becoming oxidized. And we used linoleic acid as an example. So, linoleic acid, dietary linoleic acid, is, but is transported also bound to albumin. And yes, when rubin is present on the albumin molecules, those enolytic acid molecules are protected from oxidation. And we could observe this happen under physiologically relevant concentrations of, of rubin at least physiologically relevant for humans in that concentration range. and. You know, we then extended the studies to other structures um, in terms of the testing the possibility that beta may protect other structures. And we spent several years uh, investigating how beta protects lipoprotein lipids, and in fact lipoprotein uh, proteins from oxidation. This was done in the context of the oxidation theory of atherosclerosis according to which lipoprotein oxidation is an initial event in atherosclerosis. So we were very interested to see whether bilirubin can protect lipoprotein-associated lipids, particularly LDL-associated lipids from peroxidation. We, we could demonstrate that this was indeed the case. And then this also led us to very substantive investigations in the uh, in interaction of bilirubin with alpha tocopherol, which happens to be transported in, in lipoproteins in our body, and yeah, that led to some rather surprising and very interesting uh, findings. So, and then other laboratories have extended the antioxidant protective activity of bilirubin to other structures, you know, including DNA, for example, and so on. No proteins, other than albumin, are protected from uh, oxidation when they bind bilirubin and so on. So yes, in very, general set, uh, in very general terms, we believe that bilirubin protects both lipids and proteins from a radical induced oxidation.
0: Just to clarify with you, bilirubin has to be bound to these structures? in order to provide this antioxidant activity, or do you think the vicinity of bilirubin to this structure is already enough to exert?
1: So that's a really, really good question. And again, I think that's related to, you know, potential therapeutics that are being developed. So in the case of albumin bound bilirubin, that's the situation we studied studied uh, most extensively, obviously the concentration of unbound bilirubin in a solution where you have the protein and the pigment is very, very low. So I think it's very, very simple to assume that it's the bound bilirubin that provides the protection, not the one that dissociates from the protein molecule. Once you move to other proteins, obviously association and dissociation, equilibrium is different, whereas in the case of L-women, it's very much favoring um, Association with other proteins, that you know, the equilibrium is a little bit more favour. I mean, is is shifted to some extent towards dissociation, but still the majority of the pigment will all, always be protein-bound. So we assume for other proteins, it's also the case that it's the bound pigment that provides the antioxidant protection. Is this just, you know, a, a localized antioxidant action? Well with in evidence to indicate that while we do have localised antioxidant activity, the ec- antioxidant activity may not be limited to a local environment. And the best example that I can probably give you is when we did experiments with lipoproteins in conjunction with albumin-bound bilirubin, we could still demonstrate that albumin-bound bilirubin could chemically interact with vitamin E located within the lipoprotein particle. So, in other words, there was the ability of beta-rubin to provide hydrogen atoms to an alpha-tocopheroxyl radical to restore alpha-tocopherol and thereby provide a bridge between protein and lipid phase. Now, is there an intermediary? Aqueous form of beta-rubin, which is involved, you know, we don't, we can't exclude that uh, totally, but I think it's very unlikely. So, in summary, I think what's happening is that beta has got two main functions. It has a function as a, as a protective agent for protein when it's bound to the proteins, and it has got a protective function from lipids when it is incorporated within the lipids. And then there is this kind of intermediary scenario also where an albumin-bound bilirubin we have not tested that for other proteins, uh, but an albumin-bound bilirubin can interact with the lipid phase. Let's leave it at that. But we have no good evidence that water-soluble forms of bilirubin in biological systems provide so. Let me rephrase it. We have no evidence that hydrated as has antioxidant activity to a biological meaning. So we think it's either lipid bound or protein bound bitubrubin, which has not the protective act. So
0: this leads me to the epidemiological studies. We are going from the very, very fine details of the activity antioxidant activity of bilirubin to the epidemiological studies showing that in healthy populations a higher level of bilirubin in blood, which is still in the normal range, are associated with a reduced risk of cardiovascular morbidity and mortality. And there are also published studies demonstrating that subjects with diabetes But that also suffer at the same time from another kind of condition. It's a hereditary disorder called Gilbert syndrome. They have less, they exhibit less negative complications from diabetes compared to patients that have diabetes but don't have Gilbert syndrome. So, based on all that you told us today, how do you think the the discovery, your discovery of bilirubin has been a powerful antioxidant fit with these findings in humans.
1: Well, I, I think they fit very nicely um, with this. So you're correct uh, about the epidemiological uh, studies. Um, so higher levels of bilirubin are associated with uh, a decreased cardiovascular uh, mortality uh, and morbidity. And you mentioned Chilbert syndrome, I pronounce it Chilbert uh, syndrome, uh, which is a hereditary uh, condition where the conjugation, the glucuronidation required for the removal of bilirubin from our body is decreased and that then slightly elevates peterbupin uh, conditions. I should perhaps also say, and I'm probably allowed to do that, one of the key Interest that Bruce Ayn is had in your in be is the fact that he's actually a shield bear. he's got shield um, so elevated bilirubin and yolk. So, yeah, I think I must be well protected from oxidative damage, but anyway, that's just um, it, yes. then... yeah, uh, I just want to also say that, um, it's the mildly elevated bilirubin concentration as a consequence kind of shield it's it's not really something that the subjects with shield. Syndrome suffers from. In fact, most children but patients with or subjects with bear don't are not aware that they have a Um, it, you know, it's a it's a harmless uh, condition. Uh, as I um uh, with other words, um, and you also stated correct that, that you know people with Gilbert syndrome and diabetes have got a lower incidence of uh, cardiovascular complications, and in fact. Well, we have done very little epidemiological studies ourselves. Well, I have actually has done one piece of epi- epidemiology in diabetic uh, subjects, and we did not look at shieldbear syndrome. We just looked at the, at the general uh, population. There was a rather large study involving nearly 10,000 subjects, and we sh- we showed that in people without shieldbear, there was also an association between increased bilirubin concentrations and limb amputation. So the higher the bilirubin concentration, the lower the risk for these diabetic subjects to have to undergo amputation. And as you know, that's one of the brutal artery disease is one of the complicating um, factors in, uh, with, in people with type two diabetes. So I read it, this suggests that elevated Circulating concentration of bilirubin can protect against fruitful artery disease, um, and of course, you know our finding uh, fits well. Our basic science findings fit well with that because um, lipid and protein oxidation are thought to be contributing factors to atherosclerosis. I've already alluded uh, to this. Atherosclerosis itself is the major uh, contributor to cardiovascular disease and it's also very significant contributor to peripheral vascular disease or peripheral artery disease. So I think that's all very uh, concurrent. Um, but it, we probably should also s- say that uh, bilirubin, in addition to an- its antioxidant activity, has also anti-inflammatory activities. And we know that inflammation also contributes to atherosclerosis. So we need to also consider that an anti-inflammatory activity of beta may be relevant when it comes to the, you know these epidemiological um, studies. And to me, actually, an interesting question still to be addressed is whether, I mean if so, to what extent the antioxidant activities of beta contribute to its anti-inflammatory activities in vivo. That's something that I think people have not really uh, tried to investigate, but I think it would be interesting to find out.
0: Yes, you are giving me ideas and uh, I'm not retired yet. So I can still do some experiments in the lab. Actually, you preceded my my question because, you know, we are really focused on the antioxidant properties of these bile pigments. And we know from, even from some uh, experimental models that there are some anti-inflammatory activities of bilirubin, but Really, we haven't investigated this very, very well. So, and we cannot exclude, of course, that there could be many different actions of the bile pigment that help us to, you know, to improve and to, to be protected by these molecules. So, we were saying that bilirubin is is beneficial against atherosclerosis and cardiovascular disease, and recently you published a very, very elegant work where you described how bilirubin, you went into the mechanisms. You were able to demonstrate that bilirubin is really protective against atherosclerosis using these very elegant models. So. I think you really advanced, again, the field, shedding some light on the protective properties of bilirubin in the cardiovascular system. Can you describe what were your findings and how you were able to demonstrate uh, these findings in your latest work?
1: Yeah, sure. Look, I need to, first, I just briefly talk about atherosclerosis. You have mentioned it in the introduction, um, but Atherosclerosis contributes to cardiovascular disease outcomes principally in two ways. The first is the way that you mentioned already, and that is that as the size of the plaque, atherosclerotic plaque, increases, the lumen within the artery can narrow. And it can narrow to an extent that results in insufficient blood supply to the downstream organ, such as the heart. But importantly, this type of atherosclerosis disease can be readily detected and treated. So there's a second type of um, atherosclerotic plaques, and they are thought to contribute to probably about half of the events, cardiovascular disease events. And that type of atherosclerosis refers to an unstable and high risk plaques and these are characterized by the fact that they can rupture and lead to a very acute cardiovascular event. In the first mode of atherosclerosis, that's a gradual process that people you know, become aware of. Whereas this one, the plaque rupture, is a very abrupt event and it can lead to this. And unfortunately, at the moment, unstable plaques cannot be identified readily and there's also no generally available treatment for this type of atherosclerotic disease. That's so a real, that's where atherosclerotic, uh, atherosclerosis research really focuses on. So, how did we go about to address this question? So, we focused on this second type of atherosclerosis, namely the unstable blood. And in 2013, an Australian group down in Melbourne they published a really interesting uh, methodology. See, again, it goes back to my methodologies. And they published a mouse model of unstable plaque. If you want, I can elaborate how the model works, but maybe for the sake of time, I won't. And so we then asked uh, the question with this mouse model whether, whether bilirubin could affect plaque stability. So that's a different question to ask can bilirubin affect atherosclerosis? Yeah. So we we generated the mouse model of bilirubin deficiency by deleting the gene encoding bilirubin reductase, which is responsible for the conversion of bilirubin into bilirubin. And these bilirubin reductase knockout mice, they have essentially no bilirubin in in, in their body. And then we crossed these mice with the apolipoprotein E gene knockout mice that re- is required for the mouse model of unstable plaque. And we look at the development of unstable plaque in beta deficient versus beta-rubin-proficient animals. And we used very well and established parameters, in a, a, um, including histological uh, parameters, etc. And this experimental approach showed that animals that were deficient in beta had their unstable plaques became even more unstable. It had no effect on atherosclerosis at sites where stable plaques had been developed. So this, the effect of Peter rubin deficiency was specific, selective for unstable plaque. Um, and it really then showed that in this model, Rubin has an in vivo uh, protective activity and we could start uncovering the mode of action and again what we observed is this was associated with an increase in lipid oxidation an increase in protein oxidation but also with an increase in inflammation and one enzyme a pro-inflammatory enzyme that we are particularly interested in is myeloperoxidase. And we could show that vitirubin deficient animals in the unstable plaque have an elevated activity of myeloperoxidase. And this is interesting because in separate studies, we we show that plaque activity of myeloperoxidase is a cause of plaque destabilization. And in fact, we're just about to submit the manuscript where we show that plug MDR activity is also response can, is is a predictor of plug rupture and atherothrombosis. so we believe that in this model um Rubin then um, um well the implement uh, the implementation is that uh Rubin increases should then de uh, an increased plaque stability. And of course, that is the next step that needs to be uh, shown. And I'm very happy to say that one of my former postdoctoral scientists, Dr. Wei Chen, is, is now an independent investigator back in China. And that is going to be the, uh, the research area that his laboratory will be focusing on.
0: All this very clear explanation is stimulating another couple of questions that were not planned, but I think I have to ask them. The first is that in this animal model where you prevent bilirubin formation because you are deleting biliverdin reductase, have you seen an accumulation of biliverdin?
1: Yes. Yes. So. A bilirubin does accumulate, but it accumulates. When well, it accumulates, its concentrations are still lower than that of bilirubin. And we think that again has got to do with the fact that elimination of bilirubin uh, through water-soluble processes um, is faster for bilirubin than it is for bilirubin. So maybe putting it in different words. BD Rubin hangs around as a molecule longer than does Billy and if you want it to be active in a process, that is beneficial. If you hang around rather than if you know if you have been secreted very rapidly, the chance that you can provide protection is is decreased.
0: Exactly because this was going to be my second question or my second comment. Can I
1: just so, so um, sorry, Roberto, to interrupt, but. You know, initially, uh, very early on, I said, you know, in terms of function of Billy Worden in humans, you know, we don't have good evidence for that, that scenario. And this is, has been driven primarily by the concept that Billy Burden does not accumulate. But with these Mars experiments, obviously, we looked for Billy Worden. And we started looking for Billy and not just in atherosclerotic blood, but also in other tissue. And one of the things that we observed is that contrary to the common belief that Billy Worden does not accumulate uh, in most tissues, we could actually detect Billy even in the control the Billy Worden those wild-type mice. So I also think that maybe there is a need to revisit that concept that Billy Worden is so water soluble that it's eliminated so fast that it can't be accumulating. Maybe that's not always actually the case. That case.
0: Because in a way your data uh, are telling us that maybe bilirubin is more powerful than bilirubin because even if we have a little bit of an accumulation of bilirubin, we may not have as much protection as when we have bilirubin because this is what you show in your uh, in your experiment that's right yeah. but perhaps the fact that bilirubin-
1: and also in the chemical tests when we tested that you know i'd go back to the very beginning when we tested the chemical um antioxidant activity of the pigment. There's no doubt that bilirubin is not as strong an antioxidant on a mole per mole basis compared with you know, at least for radical oxidants. Two electron oxidants might be a different scenario, but certainly not for radical oxidants.
0: Yes. Uh, just another question in relation to these experiments. So you see that, or it looks like the presence of bilobrotin Rubin in the unstable plaque is important. I mean, we need bilirubin to prevent the plaque to become unstable, correct?
1: But this is, you're actually opening a can of worms here, Roberto. So, and we need to go back to the hipoxygenase, um, hipoxygenase boron. So, as you know, one of the strong inducers of hemoxygenase 1 is heme itself. Well, one of the characteristic of unstable plaque is intraplaque hemorrhage. So we get bleeds in those plaques. And of course, with that, we get the presence of red cells. And we have infiltrating inflammatory cells, including macrophages. So we get an induction of hemoxygenase 1 in unstable plaque, and in fact, There has been a very influential publication that suggested that in this scenario, atherosclerosis, hemoxygenase 1 is actually detrimental because they could show that the extent of hemoxygenase 1 induction correlated with plaque instability in humans. What I think is that what they reported was nothing but a consequence of intraplaque hemorrhage. And it is well known that increased intraplaque hemorrhage is associated with Increase plaque de- destabilization. So even though there is literature to suggest that induction of hemoxygenase one and its resultant degradation of heme to pd may be detrimental, we argue the opposite way, and we say in fact that is part of the defenses to the presence of intraplaque hemorrhage during which you know a damaging molecule he is converted into a protective molecule, namely bilirubin. And hence, yes, the presence of bilirubin in unstable plaque is important from a plaque stabilisation process, and that's likely an anti-inflammatory, antioxidant mode of action.
0: Before I move to the next question, you stimulated another one, and it's something that we were discussing offline the substrate for hemoxygenase activity. In your experience, do you think that the heme that is used by hemoxygenase to produce the bile pigments only derives from hemolysis, or do you think there is also an intracellular source of heme that is used in stress situations when HO1 is activated?
1: so look 80 percent of our bodies here is present in hemoglobin so logically you would expect that red cells hemolysis is a major source of substrate for hemoxygenase it has to be is it the only source i think in all likelihood no and in fact we published many years ago um cell loss status where we look at long long-term effects of elevated hemoxygenized one expressions in in a cell system. What we observed is that also heme-containing proteins like cytoscones become decreased over time. So clearly if you have heme um activity in a biological systems, it will essentially I mean it will use heme from all sorts of um, him um, proteins. Uh, again quantitatively I'm sure the hemoglobin is, is is always going to be the, a major player but this does not mean that other heme containing proteins that uh, you know where the, he has to turn over do not provide a, a realistic source for him um, to be converted into to be
0: yes so. Yeah, I'm still, I'm still thinking about your description of the atherosclerotic plaque because all we think about is the accumulation of the fatty tissue and perhaps the inflammatory cells, but we never think about the hemolysis that is also occurring locally. So this is, I think, an important point that maybe joins all the different elements and all the different processes that are occurring there also, because the the release of him will be again a stimulation for free radicals production, and therefore again the usual process of biliverdin and bilirubin being able to protect there.
1: Yeah, and if you look at human the human disease and you do histological analysis of let's say a, a carotid lesion using an arrectomy specimen, it is very common. So you do an iron stain. Um, so it's very common to see iron deposits in the lesions that have healed, you know, and you can see several layers of. It's almost like you know a history of the disease that that vessel has undergone, and there's no doubt that you know iron de- deposits are very very common, certainly in the human disease. Arguably, much less common in animal models of atherosclerosis. So, but I do think in the human disease, there's undoubtedly evidence for the presence of Hohim ho- ho- and hence subscribe for Hohim oxygen
0: so in uh, we go back again to your original article where you were studying at the same time uh, Billy, Ver- Billy robin uh, synergizing with vitamin E to protect against the radicals and oxidative stress in the cell membranes. so as you know I'm a nutritionist and I find it's I find this finding fascinating for different reasons. The first is that vitamin E is a fundamental antioxidant that we have to introduce with diet. For example, you find it in olive oil, in nuts, in seeds, in wheat germ. And this is in contrast with the bilirubin, which is actually produced by our body. It's an antioxidant that is produced by our body and the third fact that to me is very interesting, is that an endogenous antioxidant and an exogenous antioxidant, such as vitamin E, can work together to protect the cell membrane against damage, cell membranes or perhaps other uh, cellular structures. So what is in general your view of this concept and Of course, there are consequences if we think about this, because we may have situations where bilirubin production is decreased for some reasons, or we have a lack of vitamin E in our diet and therefore the fact that the two of them work together, but maybe there are situations where one of them is going to be decreased. What do you think could be the consequences and what, what do you think about this concept of synergism?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting issue, isn't it? Um, and yes, indeed, bilirubin and vitamin E or alpha tocopherol can uh, work cooperatively to prevent oxidative damage to lipids. So we've demonstrated that very, very clearly. But you need to keep in mind that bilirubin does not require vitamin E to be to protect lipids from oxidative damage, and in fact. I'm not aware of literature that would suggest that low levels of vitamin E decrease the antioxidant activity of bilirubin in E, but I'm not aware of that, that type of uh, article. When we look at the converse situation, it gets a little bit more complicated because there are indeed situations where vitamin E requires bilirubin or other antioxidants, and we term those antioxidants co-antioxidants, It requires it to effectively prevent lipid oxidation that's predominantly shown in lipoproteins. And the larger the lipoproteins, the more pronounced this requirement of vitamin E for a co antioxidant is. So, still observable in HDL small particles, clearly observable in LDL, and very observable in VLDL or colomic. Does it extend to membranes? We don't think so because they're too small for this interaction to be required. So in the context of atherosclerosis, we were interested in that because, as I mentioned earlier, lipoprotein oxidation, according to the oxidation theory, was thought to be an initiator of atherosclerosis. And in that sense, we did think that the synergism between bitirubin and vitamin E could be really important. And it could still in part explain the epidemiological studies showing an association between high beta-rubin, high circulating levels of beta and uh, cardiovascular disease events. So if we then talk about vitamin E, and I'm not a nutritionist, and I've gotten into very hot waters over, over this uh, with my views. Um, so the importance of dietary vitamin E, I build should also be looked at, at least in part, from a health benefit point, um, with the association of vitamin E consumption of vitamin E rich foods, because as he pointed out, those are normally healthy foods. And I think that interpretation is in fact consistent with the overwhelming evidence that shows that uh, low vitamin E levels and diets low in vitamin E are associated with increased vascular disease. Yet, when you then try and go in the other direction, you come in with vitamin E supplements. It is now very clearly established that they do not decrease cardiovascular disease. In fact, if anything, vitamin E supplements increase mortality. It does not decrease mortality. So, yes, there is cooperation. Uh, I see it much more from a bilirubin perspective than from a vitamin E perspective. And certainly, um, bilirubin's lipid antioxidant activity can be enhanced in the presence of vitamin E. So in the case of large organs, not necessarily uh, membrane cell membranes. Yeah, but I don't necessarily think that applies in the other direction.
0: Very interesting. Yes. So I have a final question. Uh, There is a recent work being published in the literature and also work from a Japanese company. They are working on new therapeutic molecules that are based on bilirubin conjugate. And they, they are studying these new molecules in the context of cancer, trying to reduce cancer and, and tumors, and also in uh, inflammatory conditions. So the fact that they are bilirubin conjugates hints at the fact that perhaps bilirubin by itself is difficult to handle. What are your, what is your view about these recent developments as bilirubin, about bilirubin as a potential therapeutic molecule for the future or bilirubin-based therapeutics?
1: Yeah. Look, I mean, they raise very important and interesting issues. The research that you referred to, I think was actually Korean lab, and Japanese are catching up on that as well. Um. They have generated these so-called bilirubin conjugates um, and they've used different uh, conjugates, uh, uh, um, pig and uh, hy- hyaluronic acid, for example. Interesting thing, and maybe I'm just you know pointing out the detail, it's actually not really a bilirubin conjugate that they use. And If you look at the underlying chemistry, they actually modify the bilirubin for us to convert one of the carboxylic acids into an amide and then they form a conjugate. So they're not, in fact, true beta-rubin conjugates, to kind of beta-rubin derivative conjugates. Um, So the concept is that they add add a very polar moiety, you know, like uh, polyethylene glycol, or hyaluronic acid to this water insoluble molecule, bilirubin. And then that leads to a self assembly whereby the hydrophobic water insoluble part, the bilirubin, you know, is in the center of my cells with all of the polar residues sticking out, right? And indeed, when you use these conjugates, they are readily water soluble and they, you know, Automatically form these micelles and these, you know, the groups that characterize these micelles. So, just before we talked about, you know, how does bilirubin act as an antioxidant in vivo? And I said, you know, PD is actually able to bridge that interface between a protein bound form and a lipid form. And a question whether hydration or a hydrated bilirubin molecule is. Is needed for I would have thought that putting the reactive molecule into the center of a micelle will not facilitate its interaction with a, a lipid-bound vitamin E molecule. For example, it should be should be doing the opposite. In fact, the very polar structure around the micelle will almost ensure that that complex that does not get even close to a lipid environment. Will it incorporate into proteins? Again, I don't, because the micelles are, you know, a structure by themselves. So I think fundamentally to me, and you know, I have a very biased view about this, but I think that really that approach really changes conceptually um, the location and likely interaction of bilirubin with biological structures. When you look at the papers, at, at at least as far or as little as I have done, I haven't done a, a comprehensive literature review of that. You know the characterization of that uh, conjugated bilirubin with regards to antioxidant activity is very rudimentary. They use non specific methods and they only do test to experiments that are of unknown physiological relevance and i've not seen maybe i've missed some studies but i've not seen anything um biological you know an antioxidant test for example in a biologically relevant fluid like a model or, or something like that so i think the concept you know of making difficult to work with, water insoluble molecule, water soluble, is good. What is also good about this approach is that, and maybe that's really where the advantage will, uh, will be with that approach, is that they can provide additional cargo to those particles. For example, that targets them specifically to a particular cell, like a cancer cell, and hence provides some targeted um activity rather than you know general activity but i'm not convinced that this is the approach to be used to you know provide bilirubin in an anti-op in an antioxidant fashion comparable to the bilirubin that is in your body and in my body um Note I also know that you know these things need to be administered intravenously. You know, that's not that a great way to go about it. Um so I do think probably um there are alternative approaches to consider uh in terms of formulating a bit of rubin. And to me, um, an obvious approach to pursue would be the combination of beta with with bile salts because we that's the situation we have in bile where we know that the concentration of unconjugated beta is several times higher than it is um, you know in in the a, a PBS uh, buffer at pH seven point four and we know that we can achieve concentrations in you know up to 30, 50 micromolar of get a bit of in the presence of bile salts and so to me that type of formulation seems to me a more obvious way to go particularly because bile salts are being used for other to use in our compounds and in therapy and and pharmaceutical industry
0: and because they are produced in our body so
1: And, and yes that's correct yeah it- anyway, so that's some our thoughts. Certainly an interesting area to look at, but I think it 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 does deserve some more careful analysis of what they think the mode of action of bilirubin in these complexes indeed is.
0: So you're not convinced that bilirubin in this or a bilirubin derivative in these conjugate molecules? Can still maintain the antioxidant activity and so no, I mean
1: it. It can to some extent, but from the studies, and again, I should say the limited number of papers that I've read um, on this, I'm not convinced that this is likely to be. This activity is likely to be relevant under a biologically, you know, relevant condition. So they've used test tube conditions that I consider to be not very. Um, uh, physiologically and when they do comparison with other antioxidants including bilirubin, the way I've read it, the way this is done is just inappropriate. They don't don't compare apples with apples. So we don't actually know even from the where people have reported antioxidant activities of these conjugates and and the uh, Nanoparticles. We, we don't really know how that compares with anything else, including unconnected uh, Peter Rubin.
0: Yes, very clear. Um, I think we are ending our uh, our very interesting conversation. I've learned an enormous amount of information. I'm so glad you accepted to to be with us today. And I really thought I knew a little bit about Rubin, but definitely I realized that I need to go back and look very carefully at all the studies that you published and all the insights that you produced over the years. So I thank you ever so much for being with us. You raised some other points that are very interesting. You were talking about myeloperoxidase, for example, I'm very interested in also in that subject, and if you are available, I may come back and ask you to participate in another podcast, if I can take you out for a few hours from your retirement and your enjoyment of retirement. Uh, Thank you so much again. I hope that, uh, you know, you are, uh, you know, getting on with your studies. I see that you are still very interested and very implicated in science, although you may be working from home. And I thank you again for your um, participation, and I hope that our pa- podcast will help everybody who is interested in Billy Rubin to learn more about this subject.
1: Pleasure. It's been cool of my side. Thank you so much, Robert. <laughs>